Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for joining us today. We have writer and performer Nina Sharma. She's fantastic, a good friend of ours, and we have a fun chat. But first, just to let you know, our festival blog for the month of August is coming out later today in just a couple of hours. Maybe it's already out as you listen to this. If you want to submit to some festivals, be sure to check that out so you can know what festivals are open right now. All right. Well, as I mentioned, today's guest is Nina Sharma. She is a writer and performer that we met through the magnet and she's fantastic. She's uh, super fun to chat with. We have a really good talk. So here it is. Here's my chat with Nina Sharma. Quick shout out to Alan Thick. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right. Thickians will get it. <laughs> Alan Thick, classic theme song writer. We have a great theme song you were saying you listen to every time yes. you listen to the podcast. You don't skip yes, it, which I appreciate. I I've had people compliment mm-hmm. the theme song before. I do think it's a great theme song. Is it your brother? The, the rapper Vado is someone that I found on Fiverr. Seven oh, years cool. Ago. Over seven years ago, actually, because he oh I had him do a theme song for a sketch show that I was part of at my old theater. When I came up with the idea for the podcast, I was like, I'm gonna ask him to do a rap <laughs> on this song that my friend Neil gave me the music of. And he crushed it. I just thought it was like such a fun the instrumental was so fun. And yeah. I was like, I, I want to use this, and uh, but I want to have lyrics over it. And like, let me ask this guy to rap on it. And he he put that together. I thought it was great. That's so cool. That's like a go ahead fiver too for the <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> that guy probably is out of people's price range at this point. If he's still on there, but he wasn't. It wasn't yeah, five dollars at the that's, time. But <laughs> that's, so wait, you know, may yeah, hopefully. That's what you hope. That, yeah, that I hope he's. Falls outside. I hope yeah, so. that guy was great. Yeah, theme songs are great. Theme songs are where it's at, and I think yeah. we need more because it is yeah. something that you. It, like I, when I'm watching something that I grew up with, hearing the theme song is very yeah. much part of the experience. Yeah, it gets you like excited about the show. It's like, oh, it's starting. Yeah, absolutely. I use some theme songs that you know, being in a two writer household, theme songs are like big here as part of our creative process mm-hmm. like Quincy's working on a comic right now he's he's adapting someone's work into a into a comic and he has Very a theme cool. song for every Quincy your chapter. husband by the way yeah so people know. my husband yeah Quincy yes. Jones real name no gimmicks <laughs> it's not 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 Rashida Jones's dad Quincy Jones <laughs> no yes no relations Quincy Scott Jones his mom through through the school. make sure that people knew <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> but yeah he has a theme song a new theme song for every chapter that he works on like to kind of get in the zone mm-hmm. and this is so like and then i i kind of do the same thing i often have a like a playlist or something that i want to something that i know that'll that's like a touchstone for the for the book that I was working on, the, the chapter that I just worked on, mm-hmm. that you know, something like that. Oh, cool. This is funny. I feel like Quincy would be like, why are you talking about me now on your book? <laughs> <laughs> that was just on my mind. Well, Quincy, um, also very talented and, and yeah. great, as well as you. You're a writer, performer, you. and you, like we met through improv and done a ton of shows. You're originally from Edison, New Jersey, which is central new jersey i did look it up it is central new jersey <laughs> thank you i know Please. i know your husband calls it north new jersey northern new jersey but it's central new jersey we're really like covering really helping some marital disputes here jason so i like 
appreciate it very much. <laughs> what did you yes. say that Edison, New Jersey, you said it, it it's changed since when you grew up? Yeah, I mean, when when we grew up there, it already had started changing. So we moved there from another part of New Jersey, from Fords, per Samboy, New Jersey. So it's like a town away. So we moved to Edison in 1987. So already changing, it just became this very South Asian American area of New Jersey, a little bit like Jersey City is, a little bit like Queens is in New York as well. And so it was already going in that direction in when we moved, so it was that 1987, but it, it still felt very like a white American suburb to me. And so just, you know, over, over the years growing up there through the 90s, it was an incredible part of my coming of age of, of seeing this town mm-hmm. change and become what it is today. Yeah, and like I was saying before, for me, the distinct memory was coming home from college once and seeing this billboard, I think it was for cell phone or, or a phone card, something like that, and seeing this big Bollywood actor, Amita Bachchan, on the billboard selling this as I took the train home. And it just, it, it wasn't there before. And I remember just clocking, oh, this, this wasn't there before. And it just felt like this profound marker of change. And Is the inspiration of it? The, the inspiration of the... Of seeing that? Like it inspired yeah. you? And yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it inspired me. It, it was one of those things that just made me really think of like, wow, we really have this entrenched presence in this mm-hmm. town mm-hmm. in this way. It made me think about, you know, something that I think about a lot as a writer and a performer too, made me think about audience. Like that billboard had a very specific audience that wasn't there before, that wasn't in the sky before. So that was like just really powerful to me to see, okay, this, I mean, I guess it's capitalist, Mm -hmm. uh, but speaking to this, to South Asian American audience in a way that it, it wasn't before. So, but it's, yeah. And it's interesting to grow up in a really, you know, diverse area in the way that Edison was and is in terms of you are engaging many different types of audiences at one time. Mm -hmm. It's just interesting. And and I'm I'm grateful for growing up in that way and how, how it, how I carry it with me and, and the way that I think about who I create for. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And you were, when did you, when did writing become a part of your world? Mm, yeah okay so writing writing is always something like I just did it was something that kind of felt like it like shot out of my like spider-man <laughs> fingers or whatever <laughs> I just like, like distinctly I have two older sisters and one of them would just like she would play with me by just sitting there with a tape recorder and she'd be like okay say your poem now I, I don't know if I had prepared a poem or like had bought one or thought of one beforehand, but she would just say, oh, okay, say, say your poem into the tape recorder. And I would like, yeah, that's how we had playtime together. And in my teenage years, I, we found those tapes and I listened, we listened to them and I was like, very serious. It wasn't like playtime, like, look at this kid, let's make fun of her cutesy tape with a, a poem by Nina Sharma like very serious full name <laughs> for a five-year-old kid. And, like, and so it was playful, but it was serious. So I think from like a very early age, it was something that was like taken seriously mm. by me and, and grateful for my sister who created that space. And from there, you know, I wrote through, I don't know if I like considered like, like when I considered myself a writer and all of this, but I would like make books, like as if I like, even like with masking tape, like make a book, like bound it together and write it. Like as if I had like made the whole thing, if I was my, my own Simon and Schuster and write Mm -hmm. inside it. So I was like, kind of like fascinated by like bookmaking in general and would write stories like through grade school into high school I was always doing some kind of like either you know creative writing like fiction fictional writing or nonfiction writing I don't I don't know if I 
yeah, considered myself necessarily a writer. And I had like a lot of teachers who, who, who nurtured it. And I was saying it's only now, like as a teacher myself, do I, do I see that they did that? Like all the little nudges they so. Mm. And I think most of the people in my family are in the sciences. And so I kind of felt like that was something that I was going to do. I might go into medicine like the rest of my family. So I just kind of like, even if I never did it, I thought that's what I was doing. Yeah. Even, But, you know, my my teachers noticed. I remember in early as like, like fourth or fifth grade, my, my, my teachers noticed interest in my that I have interest in creative writing and would give me like New Jersey, like a collection of like New Jersey writers uh, <laughs> to read, like, you know, like they would be like, you know, old white men, like Stephen Crane. I don't know. I don't know. Like, <laughs> like people like that, like New Jersey's Edgar Allan Poe. Be like, he's a writer. You know, you might do your speech. Like we had to do public speaking. You might want to do your speech on him. And I remember in sixth grade, this was a substitute teacher, like brought in some like flashcard prompts for uh-huh. like creative writing and I got one it was like Mona Lisa escaped from the Louvre what did she do and I just I distinctly remember getting this flashcard prompt and just like putting my head down and just like writing furiously like I just couldn't stop and I and you know and I remember that the the teacher I was just so into it I think students had even left like and I just kept writing and I remember the next day the the teacher pointed it out oh that's this is a you know, story that Nina wrote. And so like things like that happen, you know, often I like often had these teachers that just sort of gave me nudges along the way, even though like really, honestly, through like maybe my, even after marriage, I was really wondering if I would just go into medicine if, if, um, yeah. I mean, I, I, it was more sort of like a, like a, 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 a spiritual thing maybe like can I oh, can I do something that like was a, was a little bit more un, uncharted in my in my family a little bit more of like the unknown but yeah so but I was always I was always doing it still and I think I just had to get to the point where I would say I had to get to the point where I realized like that I was tired of living this like fake life <laughs> this mm-hmm. like I like like it was almost like writing was this was my very real identity that I had you know in some way had like closeted and I was like sick of closeting it yeah anymore. And so I just like finally just started to pursue it and I was like oh, this is so much better okay yeah I mean it's yeah. the way I've heard that sort of thing described I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before so maybe you've heard it but it was something that John Stewart said about finding comedy stand-up comedy in particular about how it felt like it was his plug found its electrical socket like he said something to that effect that it it it's what made him feel connected and gave him electricity it gave him energy essentially and that's what what you're saying reminds me of that it's this thing that came so natural and you had a ton of energy for it a ton of space for it regardless yeah. of what was going on or what the you know like your teachers expecting you to write something short and you're like still writing and <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it feels like i don't know this is like a, a deep muppet cut maybe M- muppet take manhattan and which i was going to comedy i guess that's my comedy origin story that movie but um <laughs> where like Kermit like loses his memory and he tries to call. He goes by like a different name. I think he's like Tim, and like he needs this group like Tim, Sim, and Jim. It's like very just depressing. <laughs> like all the existential angst for Kermit, <laughs> and and then he then he like I think I forget what happens now, but like he somehow his memory gets jogged back. But yeah, you know, there's it always felt like that. You know, trying to pursue anything else felt like Kermit with amnesia. And you know, I really so it it felt a lot easier. Life felt a lot easier once you know you you start to figure out what you really want to do. Right, right, sure. And I just love the reference as uh, that's the importance (laughs) of the Muppets is teaching us about ourselves. It really, (laughs) yeah. But so instructive to me. 
Yeah. And you've written a ton. You've written essays and columns and had humor pieces, a bunch of humor pieces in The New Yorker. And yeah. even before that, you had a bunch of personal essays that you had, had released, even going back to 2014. And how mm-hmm. did that getting to get published come into the fold for you? Yeah, for my writing in general, I mean, like, I just, I always tell my students this, like, I just always sent out like mad. I had like an outsized, <laughs> you know, I was always uh, like a nervous writer or like, you know, is my stuff worth something? Always chipping away, always trying. But I also just had this like outsized idea of like where I could send it out to. So, uh-huh. I, you know, it's like that type of person who would write something small and be like, I'm going to send this out to <laughs> The New York Times, or I, I don't know what to say, like my like student paper, I'm going to send that out to like some like Granta literary journal, like something like that. <laughs> so, I mean, what I, what I, so all to say, I mean, it didn't always do that, but I did get in a habit early on of sending out all the time. It's, I think a lot, I would say the parallel would be just, I don't know, I'd love to talk to you about it. It's just going out for a lot of auditions. Like I would mm. just send out all the time. And mm-hmm. the way that I did that is I was on a bunch of listservs when I started writing early on. You know, this was pre-Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff where you would see calls for submission. So you just do it through e- e- email, internet, listservs. And they still, the, the ones that were great are, are still around. And so I just would get like a fair feed or that email letter with a bunch of calls for publication and I would send out to as many that seemed like that would speak to my work mm-hmm. or like I said wouldn't I would just be like let me try <laughs> yeah and I mean I did that for years got tons of rejections me and you know and, and I think that's sort of like the writers like here you mm-hmm. can take pride in all those rejections that you get I can even show you right now I can't believe Quincy was papers I'm like bringing him all into the interview right now but sorry Quincy <laughs> but he he has this song you have a big box this is a rejection letter box yes and the box is a shoe box so you have a shoe <laughs> yeah. box of rejection letters yeah, and I don't both. see how it's stacked in there and I guess the it's actually way really it's heavy stacked. it's really okay <laughs> sorry Quincy but these are from, yeah, these are from ages ago because, you know, now they all come through email and everything. But like, yeah, you you would just collect them like Girl Scout badges, you know, <laughs> and finally one or two things stuck. I remember the first time, you know, I published something and it just, it felt, it felt so good. It just, yeah. but it came like, oh, this thing stuck. And I, I say that to everybody, like, it's really just, an act of chipping away. It um, is. Honestly, yeah. it really is. Yeah. It's like you do have to put yourself out there a lot. Yeah. That doesn't make it not tough necessarily, yeah. but you know, you can get a bunch of rejections and it not phase you is is true. But it's not that zero of them phase you. <laughs> yeah, I know. Some will it's... some will phase you pretty hard. But you know, it would be an interesting exercise. I would love it if someone who's like super successful, like a I don't know, a Tina Fey or Anne Hathaway or I don't know like just anyone who's because I heard the story about Anne Hathaway when she lived in New York I can't remember how long it was it was either one year or three years straight of not booking anything at one point you know and it would be an interesting visual exercise for people if one of those people had had this big giant jar and they put like a <laughs> a, a marble in it yeah. for each rejection yeah. for each thing that they submitted for or auditioned for that they didn't get and then a marble and a jar for each thing that they got i mm-hmm. think i would i would imagine for the average famous person that jar of rejections is massive compared mm-hmm. to the jar of what they got and it's, Even it's not to make people feel bad, but it's just that it's to say you don't need to have submitted to more things to have the success that they had. You know, like you're probably submitting to you're on track to submit to the same amount of stuff that they put themselves out there for. Right. Um, yeah. The result is going to be the result and it's going to play out differently for each person. But yeah. you, there's still hope for you. 
if you see that jar filling up with marbles and and you're feeling like oh well i'll never get to where tina fey is was like well not necessarily you know like she had a jar like this too at that point so it's just it would be an interesting thing i think for people to see but nobody's done that so yeah you could well we have now launched a a million dollar business idea (laughs) (laughs) this is what the podcast should be all about yes Uh, (laughs) a creative podcast yeah i i appreciate what you said in particular and that it's like not like Mm -hmm. oh i need to she went for x amount of auditions i'm gonna go for this many more right like it's it's not that i think that's such an important detail in there jason Mm -hmm. yeah yeah thank you so when you were writing your earlier work did it lean more towards the satire or did comedy grow as you found improv comedy writing yeah i i would say i want to like go back and say that i was always interested in performing i i feel like it was always in kind of the backbeat of my field of creative interest i just had more teachers kind of like noticing and nurturing the writing stuff but I always was like interested in performance. I was interested in comedy and performance in particular together, very specifically. And I and I tried it a little bit here and there through childhood, through high school, and into college. But I just found a little bit more mentorship in in my writing life. So that sensibility always pulled into my writing in, in some way. And that I always, you know, the things that I wrote about to me always came from a place of like a story that felt fun mm-hmm. like something that felt to me like was tugging at something in my funny bone or maybe like it was not necessarily funny but it just felt like enjoyable and I pursued that thread into mm-hmm. making a piece of writing in college when I you know one of the first short pieces I wrote I was like after taking like a bunch of Russian literature classes or uh, taking this one one class actually reading a bunch of Russian literature in it I wrote like a parody of this Google story the nose from the nose's point of view it's the oh I wrote this like a parody story of like a I forget exactly what happened like what I was speaking to but it was like just a, a nose that had left a face and was just I guess I write a lot about like people things on the run on their own that are surreal but it just it was something that amused me what would happen if this like this body part was able to move about the world and so I just kind of always kind of gravitated to the absurd or the surreal and one of actually one of the first pieces that I ever published was this short piece and I it was for a humor like a humor edition of this literary magazine and the piece was called When My Mom and Kanye West Go Jewelry Shopping Together. <laughs> yes, I saw that, yeah. That was yeah. sort of Drunken Boat. That, that got yeah, published. Drunken yeah. Boat, I think. Yeah, and it's just, I remember writing it, and I just wrote it in my head. I was I remember just getting in a taxi cab, and I was just was literally just, the lines were running through my head, like, what would what would that be like if Mom and <laughs> Kanye West? And then I just happened to write it down, so... I like kind of storytelling, like storytelling with friends, shoot, you know, kind of making people laugh, laughing together, creating yarns together. I kind of, that's like when I feel like I'm hitting the sweet spot in my writing, if I can do the same thing on the page. And sometimes it comes, you know, out more serious than funny. And sometimes it comes out more funny than serious, but there's this sort of share there's just this feeling of like, I just want to have like a fun, t- like the the phrase that uh, I'm taking from like the Hawaiian storytelling tradition, a uh, talk story. I just like want to kind of like shoot the shit or like uh, share a yarn with people. That's always been the thing that's compelling my writing. Oh, fun. Often, like for me, the humor, I have to get like all the serious stuff out first. Mm-hmm. to me there seems like there's two different processes maybe mm-hmm. they're not all that different but there's people that need to like get all the funny stuff out first before they can kind of hit their nerve like hit the vulnerable spot 
Uh-huh. And I'm the other way. I'm like, I have to get all the trauma and sincerity up or like up to like word vomit it. And then I can find, oh, like this like that like weird, funny shit that is like my the touchstone, the, the thing That's that I really want to interesting. Yeah. And it, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think I think there are a lot of people in improv and in comedy where their first thought is to be silly and the, or or to do something subversive to be mischievous and funny. But there are people who their first thought is either dramatic or it's something that isn't about fun. It, it's it's mm-hmm. just about something more standard, like exposition to a story or something neutral, you know. <laughs> yeah. And and then after a while, they're like, OK, I see where there's something funny to do here. And it's just yeah. how different brains work, just how, how people work differently. But that's interesting that you found that, that like, let me write all of the serious stuff. And then I'll see where the, <laughs> then that something will jump out at yeah. me then. Yeah. You know, that I need to share with myself. Like, this is, <laughs> yeah. this is serious. <laughs> like, you have to see yourself. Like, I see you. Yeah, this is some serious <laughs> shit you went through. And then you can get through it. I, you know, but there is like a middle process in, in the middle of that, that I hope I'm working towards. And I have to say, like, the, the magnet is a place where I began to identify that I was Mm. going to call it like the middle process right Mm -hmm. right now where it was for it was one of the first things I did on stage in the magnet I wrote a story for you are not alone Mm -hmm. the the show about depression Mm -hmm. sold through essays and and storytelling and improv paired with that but and at that point I was just taking like a level one at the magnet and I totally like separate from even knowing you are you are not alone. I was just me and Quincy were talking one night. I was just we're just like making the bed mm-hmm. and like like just making the t- insufferable action of like trying to put a pillow in a pillowcase past by like telling stories. Uh-huh. So like not even thinking, totally unconscious. This also is like someone I love, so he knows this part of my life, so it didn't like hit him. But I guess. I started to tell him about this like really horrible <laughs> mental health thing I went through, but I didn't tell it in like a horrible, I didn't tell like, oh, I went through this horrible thing, but I just started talking about like, like an odd detail. And I mean, I'll just basically share it if, if that's okay. Whatever you're comfortable sharing. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm fine. Being a nonfiction writer, I'm just like a chronic overshare. So now I feel like I have to check in with other people. Like, how are you? How are you with this? But I, it was, yeah, I was going through a manic episode in, or I don't think it was a manic episode, but I was hospitalized for bipolar disorder. And I was in, in some way dealing with like mania or depression, just, just needed help with bipolar disorder. And I was just telling Quincy the story of like, my roommate in the in the mental hospital like having an episode like having an attack and the nurses coming in and being like so jersey being like and soothing her but being so jersey she was hearing voices and the 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 nurses were like shut up tell those voices to shut shut up and it (laughs) and it it worked this this woman like she calmed down and it's it, it it's still really moving to me because that's what it is. It's like challenging those kind of negativity that can force through you. That's one way of looking at it. But it always just stuck to me, stuck with me as like something really funny. <laughs> yeah. And Quincy just stopped me and said, you need to tell the story like that. You need to tell it exactly like that. And then I went to the computer and tried to write it down. And I was like, wait, what did I say? What did I say exactly? Yeah. And, you know, the, this part of me that wants to tell it in this, I don't know, like more like serious way or critical way or academic way or like, mm-hmm. you know, tr- truth, you know, comedy is truth to power, but like truth to power way, like it kind of takes over, took over. I almost had to ask Quincy, but yeah, what did I say? And uh, my process was to like get down on the page how I said it to Quincy Mm. and like to cut through these layers of like, this is how I'm supposed to say it Uh. to get to the way that, and I think improv is, has really helped me. I've known my, one of my editor, one of my editors that I've worked with for a long time who has seen my writing grow, she's noticed Mm. it. Like I can more quickly get to the way that I say it onto the page now and that's been a really exciting part of doing improv 
and seeing really where I am. Yeah. What yeah. made you start doing improv? Like, what made you say, I want to take classes and, and perform? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So many different things. For me, I, like, always wanted to perform, but, like, it took me a, a while to get there. So my father is a, a doctor, but he was mm-hmm. always a performer. I, I always feel like he's the type of person that has, like, a mic in his back pocket. <laughs> and, like, at Indian weddings, he's, like, the the, the stand-up comic. And, and you know, even when we were growing, he's a singer. So every weekend we'd have parties. And, like, you know, this is where also, like, there was, like, a the Indian social communities, we would, like, they would get together and be together, like, almost every weekend. My, my parents are very happening people, I realize, and like in comparison to like my social life they were like for the hot party on on Saturdays and my dad would sing so just like a performance and how it was like life-giving and community gathering was something that was like kind of stitched into me like like in my DNA it was so much Mm -hmm. part of the way that I grew up and from there I had like a couple moments of performances of of performing in particular that I just really enjoyed. And, and I went to a summer camp in like fifth or sixth grade. And I, I took the, the class I took there was an improv class and I really loved it. And, but I didn't go back home and continue to find like theater outlets that, that I continued on with, but I just remember really loving it. And then, then I remembered also in, I think it was like sixth or seventh grade. I, I, for some reason, we had like, like a, our, our class was split into like two groups and one group did kind of like a scripted performance and, and my group chose not to do a scripted performance Mm. and the scripted performance, like, like there are, they were kind of, everyone expected it to be like better or or whatever it it was like the more enviable group to be in maybe I feel like my group was maybe the other guys (laughs) but we we killed it Uh, we were unscripted I remember like I don't know what we were doing maybe it was like a class talent show but uh we killed it I I remember I think like some of my teammates like we took like clothes from my parents closet like weird 70s clothes from my mom and like put them on and we just like made things up and it was so much fun and then in in high school I like watched you know all the tv shows like snl they really loved both of them a lot and i would say things to my friends like we'll start a comedy group (laughs) but i just didn't know how to do it right Um, Mm -hmm. and i think you know what happened to me is like i and i but i was always consistently always writing i think it was still such a big deal for me to you know veer off the Veer off of something that I I thought like I was expected to do, which was go into like a more like a science, a more tracked career, and to to not do that and become a writer was like a big step in my life on its own. Mm-hmm. Once I was really kind of, I think what happened to me is once I fell all in that, I found this writing life that is like ready to be like, okay, I also wanted to do this comedy performance thing, and let me try there. And I, 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 it took me still a while to get there, but I literally was teaching around the corner from the pit. And so I'd pass it on my commute all the time, uh, the people's improv theater. And um, it just started to bug me. I was like, this is the thing you want to do. Let's try to do it. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. You mentioned that improv helped you get to the right way to write out your thoughts. What about improv do you think contributed to that? Because that's a very interesting thing. I do think that that happens i've heard john favreau of now of like mcu and star wars fame but you know before he wrote swingers he was doing improv in chicago and he says that he learned to write how to structure a story from doing improv and i'm curious (laughs) for you what the experience was like like what about improv helped that for you yeah well i have a strong writing background already and strong in that like I had a real strong point of view and what makes what makes good writing a strong mm-hmm. set of like my own tools of what I, what I use to make like a good piece of writing. Mm-hmm. So I had gone to grad school already from got my MFA in creative writing. So I I had like really had my own sense of like this is of story craft, so to speak, of like how to do that for me. And when 
I came to improv though, it was like a, just like a different way of making a story than doing it alone on the mm-hmm. page. I could just talk about this forever. So I try to try to keep it <laughs> one track, but you know, it was just, it was one of those things I remember in my first class, just, you know, I realized like I was just sitting there in my first level one class. I was just sitting there watching it as if it was like a TV show. And then I was like, oh no, I have to like get up and, and do this. I have to get up and do this. And I realized, you know, it's it's an incredible thing to tell a story with your body, but uh-huh. with your full body, like on your feet. It's, it's different than being at, at, at a pace and with others. Mm-hmm. So something that I, that I started, the more that I did it and started to tell stories in that way. And like, then you also like connect with audiences in a different way than, than when you're sharing your work in your writing, the more that I did that, the more I realized I wanted to like, for my writing to do be that too. I like, and I, I started to just set intentions for me. There's just something about comedy where you just, especially in improv, where you just have this like immediate connection with the audience. And it comes from the type of atmosphere that you're in, but also um, I have this one specific memory of the story that I started to write. The essay is called Shithole Country Club. Mm-hmm. There's a story that I, it's one of the first stories that I wrote where I had done a considerable amount of improv before I started writing it. So I had this experience of like story making before I went into writing it. Mm-hmm. And I just said to myself, okay, I want this piece, even though it's a, it's a, it's about Trump National Country Club, my father's affiliation with it, Hindu nationalism, white supremacy, all these things. I knew it was going to be densely researched. I knew it was going to have a lot of like things going on it, but I was like, I wanted to read, I wanted to have a pacing, a fast pacing. Mm-hmm. The way comedy can have a fast pace to it, a fast clip to it. Yes. And it's not going to be fast because there's going to be all this like research and it's going to be thick with stuff. But I, I wanted to feel that way. So let you me wanted just, to hit. Yeah. And have yeah. A, I wanted have to feel like a rhythm. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to have a clear rhythm and a quick hit. So I was like, let me just mm-hmm. take all the stuff I do in improv mm-hmm. and pull it into the way that I'm going to tell the story. So I would just really like see this world see this world over and over again, see the structure over and over again of this piece that I was working on is like three beats, like a three beat storytelling structure. Uh-huh. I would think about heightening, like how I'm heightening just one thing. You know, it's like a 20 plus page long story, but I would just set it up into like, here are, <laughs> I'm so glad to talk to you about it. I feel like I haven't been able to say it this way. To... Here's like several improv shows. <laughs>
and mm-hmm. just keeping that in mind. Um, that's something I always think about in comedy and it, you know, comes in handy both in my essay writing, my creative nonfiction and my satire writing, of course. Awesome. And you have been a part of an all women's South Asian improv team for a few years now, several years now called, yeah. is it not your Biwi? Yeah, it's not your Biwi. I pronounced it right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, you pronounce it that way. It's, it sounds more like with a V, like not your BV. Oh, okay. Um, so I did not. <laughs> no, I did not pronounce it right. but it means in in Hindi, not your wife, right? Um, and it's me, Sarita, uh, previous guest on the podcast. Yeah, Sudhakya, Ramya, Ramaswamy, and Kavita Patel. And started Kavita, I haven't in... seen in forever. Sweet Kavita. Yeah, yeah. I saw Ramya and Kavita yesterday. Oh, that's Sudhakya. great. Yeah, yeah. Try to. Keep it going. If we're not always on stage together, we always have some kind of monthly hang. Oh, that's yeah. good. That's good. Are, do you all have any shows coming up? We don't. We're sort of regrouping. Mm-hmm. I feel like we really had a, like a lot of momentum just before the pandemic. We're, mm-hmm. we're doing like a, a show a month. There are shows in our sight line, but I think we as a group, as like people who just like love playing with each other, we just want to figure out together just ways to play and practice together and then I think hopefully in the, the fall or going forward in the next couple months we'll start booking some shows yeah I hope to see some more soon we were on a show together at Sean Cantatori's old show yeah well this has been a great chat we're at the end of it now it's time to create something together And I'd like to hear a little bit more about the process with writing for you like having gotten to this place where you have found a better pace you know a good comedic punchy pace while also figuring out how to get things down on paper quickly I imagine some structure comes with that so is there maybe not a strict formula that you follow in writing but are there beats that you're thinking about or specific things that you're thinking about when you sit down to write it's it's maybe that's something that we could try to figure out how to explain to people in a detailed way or is there another direction that we should go with the writing discussion yeah yeah I always say what's the fun of the story Mm -hmm. that's what I like to think about when I get down to write I mean for for the most part I write things that do deal with the the tough stuff that's where I feel like it all is, all the interesting stuff that I want to, to talk about, all the valuable stuff I want to talk about is. So I always tell myself, what's the fun of the story? And I always say the fun of the story sometimes is like a poop joke or like, <laughs> you know, the the fart in the kitchen. <laughs> sometimes the fun of the story is something like, you know, that feels very obvious and overt like that. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the fun of the story is that you survive and are mm. surviving and really being okay and having an expansive idea of what fun is for you and being, and but letting that thing be the touchstone that keeps you going, that keeps you writing. So just like having that thing, even if it, even if it does or does not appear in like the final version, even if it's a thing that becomes a thing that everybody laughs at like the the button the thing that you close with or is something that's like hidden in paragraph three but Mm -hmm. let that like thing that you identify that tickles you even if it's something super dark like jersey nurses like calming (laughs) down like let let that fun that tickles you be the thing that keeps you telling the yeah is there any balance that you found you have to strike so that you don't get too reductive about maybe the serious part of the story or just the story in general, or is there, you know, or, or maybe elements that you have to go like, okay, if I go too down a rabbit hole of this silly thing, then it retracts from telling the story. Hmm. Sometimes I think that I, you always want the, you always want to just make sure you're telling the story Mm -hmm. more than doing one thing or another. Um, Uh. 
you know, so if, you know, that if you're, you're not asking for the joke, you're just telling the story. So Mm -hmm. I'm just, I'm not um, to, to laugh at the nurse, (laughs) the nurses, but I'm just telling, I'm, I'm, I'm arriving there with you. I'm arriving at the realization there with you. So that's really important to me. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Because like it's got to be something that is crucial to the story and it is important to the story to move it forward. But when it is the silly element or the fun element, have fun telling that part or have fun how you describe that part. You just basically let the focus still be on telling the story and not embellishing something for laughs. Yeah, I think it's what, you know, whatever like fits. Yeah, whatever fits the the truth of that that moment for you i don't know i would i would say like it's for for me i just always think about like like challenging what you think like Mm -hmm. should happen in that moment of the story so you know it's if you feel like it shouldn't be silly like well then try like try Mm. to just make it super silly and see (laughs) what happens there Mm. and vice versa if you think this moment feels very serious do that i guess sometimes too you want to have a joke every so often (laughs) and if you you know like because they'll say stuff like i have a laugh every eight seconds in a stand-up set or 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 whatever time period they put on it so i guess if you're writing something you might want to have a laugh every so often and if there's one of those you know if it's been a little too long since the last laugh then maybe that's when you, you try to utilize what you're saying. Like, what is, what's fun about this moment that I can point out? Yeah, I think, yeah, for me, I, I, and I, I can see that how this would work in sketch or in something like a writing, like a sitcom where things are really timed out in a specific way. You're writing something 30 minutes or 40 minutes. But for me, at least what I'm doing with this, like essays are just like essays are weird and like Mm -hmm. no like this like just crazy turducken of a genre it can be whatever (laughs) you want so I you can I think it's letting it find its own rhythm and then just honoring honoring that rhythm and like finding where the, the laughs go within 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 its cadence and so there isn't there isn't necessarily like a a specific cue I can tell but you I think you have a sense of I can have I have a sense sometimes of like having written like a lot of like research-based stuff my whole life that's Mm -hmm. like my first way of writing like when I'm hiding behind research and like not really like here's something that happened in the 50s that speaks to what I'm talking about when it comes to I don't know assimilation (laughs) assimilation and but I and you know where do, where do, where do I go like I've fallen out of the story completely and now I'm on this yeah. rabbit hole about the you know <laughs> some like presidential administration so I like so I've learned that like those moments where I'm like hiding behind something so I think okay where am I hmm. when I like when am I hiding am I hiding behind by being serious am I, like am I doing like an academic drag right now yeah and you know, same thing like I don't, for me, like comedy, my dad's a big joke teller. He, he, he is like, he would always, he has like a pen in the, and a paper in his back pocket and is always writing something down. And, but, but I'm not for, for me, my comedy has always been just like storytelling or something that kind of like, it feels like it's like a mist that like rises from the surface. So for me, it's, it's, like like when am I like hiding like sometimes it feels too something feels too serious to me it feels like I'm not telling the story in its like most true way I'm hiding behind seriousness and I'm not letting like whatever's happening just rise to the to the surface my way of saying that's a very interesting (laughs) approach and concept because I, I mean I think that what you laid out would even help if someone's writing something serious. It's like you're getting, yeah. you're deviating too far from the point here by talking about all these stats or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the important thing is to just kind of have your sense of like what, 
I feel like it should, I mean, it's not writing. It's so much like revision and pulling out your hair. And like, I need, I've written a sentence and I'm having a bowl of cereal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I need to think, like, it's like, it has a lot of stressful things. But I feel like, you know, I always want my writing to have a sense of fun to it. I think it's an important way to convey a story. And then to, to then like have that sense of fun be something an audience connects with too. So it's important for me to just remember to take care of myself and have fun because I want that that to like emanate out. So just whatever you're doing, if you're having fun, deep diving in the in the research, then maybe it's the right thing to do. If you're having fun, just being kooky right now, that that's it. That's what should be there. And I think like if you honor that, you'll it'll find its own cadence. It's find its own shape. Yeah. There it is. Nina, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure, Jason. Big fan, as you know. I will be singing the theme song to myself. (laughs) (laughs) Really fun chat. I hope you enjoyed that. Nina is awesome. Big thanks to her for coming on. Her personal essay collection, The Way You Make Me Feel, Love in Black and Brown, is forthcoming from Penguin Press, spring of 2024, so be on the lookout for that. You can also go to nina-sharma.com to read her work and keep up with what she's got going on. You can also follow her on Twitter at nsharmawriter. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at There It Is Pod and subscribe to our YouTube channel at There It Is and follow me on Twitter at Jason Farr Jokes and Instagram at Jason Farr Picks. Go to thereitispod.com for newsletter and support info. Links in bio. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. (laughs) 